From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Desperate teams can often be the most dangerous, and for a squad clinging to the bubble as the calendar flipped to February, the Gators grabbed a monster victory against second-ranked Tennessee on Wednesday, the first signature win of the Todd Golden era. On today's show, we'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter and the voice of the Gators' Sean Kelly to discuss basketball's massive upset, the emotional reunion with Keontae Johnson, the last piece of Billy Napier's signing class, the on-field retirements of two Florida baseball greats, and athletes who successfully went out on top in the PAT. Then, basketball's Will Richard joins us to share the impact playing against Keontae had on him and his teammates, how he developed his sweet stroke, and what prepared him to jump from a mid-major to the SEC. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable, presented by Pet Paradise. Pet Paradise is your complete pet health care destination with resort-style day camp, overnight boarding, professional grooming, and compassionate veterinary care from New Day, all located under one roof to serve pet fanatics like you. Book today at PetParadise.com, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. Let's get this roundtable opened up. We've got FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter and the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly, with a lot of things to discuss. Uh, but obviously, we're going to start with what happened most recently and without question, the most significant development of the season for the men's basketball squad. And that is their huge upset against second-ranked Tennessee in the O-Dome on Wednesday. Uh, Chris, this was a team coming off of a really tough loss against Kansas State when they were uh, pretty thoroughly dominated. And yet against Tennessee, they came out the aggressor and save for a, a small stretch in the second half, they led and controlled this game and ultimately got a, a huge victory that kind of changes the trajectory of their season. Well, Adam, I think what you saw was uh, a game where going in, um, Tennessee is billed as the best defensive team in the country. And I'm not saying that anybody was sliding Florida in that regard, but let's not forget Florida was the eighth-ranked defensive team in the country. One team played to their numbers tonight. The others, the other played let, far lesser to its numbers. I mean, Florida. I mean, defensively, they were they you know they were they were sensational. You would you would expect a Tennessee to be sensational, but here's Florida, which has really been struggling offensively. Uh, and certainly did in the loss at Kansas State uh, just a couple nights ago. But then here's a Tennessee team that's allowing 34.5% uh, per game. They're averaging 22% allowed from three-point range. They're giving up 54 points a game. Okay, what does Florida do? Um, they shoot 43, almost 44% for the game. Uh, so that's you know almost eight, nine points better than what Tennessee is usually going to 35% from the three-point line. They made seven from back there, uh, 12 points, thir- excuse me, 13 above that. And they, uh, and they score 67 points in this, in this 67-54 win. Um, they really, really put it all together. But one of the m- more impressive things that they did, Adam, was um, 
you know, they had to take a shot to the face uh, midway through the, 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 the second half. You know, they were up 17 to four out of the box. They finally started uh, a game against an SEC opponent really, really fast. Uh, they punched first this time, but Tennessee didn't go away. You wouldn't expect them to. They're a very tough team, battle-tested, physical. Um, they chipped away at the lead, chipped away at the lead, and took not only took the lead, but a couple uh, three-pointers from Zagai Ziegler uh, midway through the second half. All of a sudden, they're down six. And right before uh, a media timeout, Kawisi Reeves fouls uh, Santiago Vescavi and from the three-point line. He makes all three. And you're looking, okay, well, now what? Now what is exactly right? And that's something Todd Golden was very proud about talking about after game. He said, he said, we had a great moment there. It wasn't great at that moment. It became a great moment because I think from there, the run, I think a minute later, they started a run that was a couple old-fashioned three-point plays from Castleton, who was really, really good in the second half, 16 of his 20 points in the second half. Had nine rebounds in the game. Will Richard made a couple really nice plays. Kyle Lofton, he only had 14 points and three assists, but it may have been his best all-around game if you think about having, um, excuse me, having a Ziegler up in his face throughout the whole team, one of the best defensive players in the in the league by far. But I mean, it was an all-around really, really good game. Uh, you know, you talk about really five guys played 24 minutes or more. Alex Fudge came off the bench to play 15 minutes. Trey Bonham had a couple of nice minutes at 14, 14 minutes. Other than that, they didn't play a lot of guys. They asked a lot from these guys. They had four guys play uh, over 31 minutes. They responded, man. And this is a game you really had to have in terms of, you know, if you have any aspirations for down the line. What Florida has now is a gold star on the resume. And they didn't have that. I mean, you, we could talk. I mean, February, Todd Golden told me last month, he goes, I don't even look at the net until February. Well, it's February 1st, okay? And the first day of February, you beat the number two ranked team in the country and the number one ranked team in Ken Palm, the number two ranked team in the net. That is a gold star. And Florida at the, going into this game was one and seven in quadrant ones. Now they're two and seven. And two and seven with a win over one of the heavy hitters at the very top of the list you can start thinking about possibilities now. Now, having said that, they go to Kentucky this week, uh, Saturday night, play at Kentucky, where they've won, uh, I think it's 10 times in 99 years, okay? That's a tall order, even against an unranked Kentucky team that's playing okay right now. They're playing better than they were. They actually, they beat Tennessee earlier this season. Then next Wednesday night, it's at uh, number four, Alabama, which um, – emasculated Vanderbilt last night. I don't, I don't know any other way to say it. Just, they took out all their frustrations from that Oklahoma loss. They won by like 50 points. Um, they'll have Florida's attention and, and they'll be able they'll look at Florida and say, Florida's going to be Tennessee. So, so Al, uh, Florida will have Alabama's attention also, but you know, you can now start looking at the schedule and it's always dangerous to do that. Cause you, it's such a hard lead. You can't start assuming things, but what you want to do, you want to protect the home floor. And if you can protect the home floor against Tennessee, you can protect the home floor against every opponent on the rest of the schedule. If you protect the home court on the rest of the schedule and steal a couple on the road, whether it's at Georgia, at Vanderbilt, maybe at Kentucky, now you're looking at 18 or 19 wins, Adam. And you're looking at 18 or 19 wins with um, a schedule that by the end of the season will be one of the 10 best in the country, 10 most difficult. So they'll have to give that its credence. And along that way, if you knock off, uh, steal another one, 
I mean, Kentucky at Kentucky is a quad one opportunity. At Alabama will be a quad one opportunity. At Arkansas will be a quad one opportunity uh, in a couple weeks. So there's chances out there, plus there's the SEC tournament. So like Todd Golden said after this game, we know now we can beat one of the best teams in the country. So if you have that, some kind of a, a, a bridge or a gold standard, I think he used, he goes, you can't, you can't expect an effort like this every night, but they can aspire to it. And now they know they can do it. And, uh, you know, congratulations to Todd. Congratulations to his staff. Um, I don't think a lot of people probably saw this coming, but it's a, it, 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 it was a really good night in the Yodom. It's the highest ranked opponent uh, ever beaten in Gainesville. It equals uh, when they beat uh, number two Auburn uh, last February 15th. So all good things from here and uh, tonight at least. And we'll see what happens, and we'll we'll see what they make out of it. They got a springboard now. I want to talk about the other big basketball story from the week, and and the one that I think we all thought would be the biggest one to discuss on this show today. Uh, but that is, of course, Keontae Johnson and Florida reuniting with Keontae, going against Keontae. A whole lot of things were happening there when they went to Manhattan. Uh, and and Chris, you ended up you got a lot of a, a lot of airtime out of it uh, when the game finally came on the air on ESPN. Um, I guess just kind of take us through what this was like uh, for the team and also personally for you, because I think a lot of people probably saw right at the start of the broadcast you were one of the first people that they saw Keontae interacting with. Denver Parler and I were standing um, in the tunnel or at the entranceway to the tunnel when Keontae he was the last one to come out of the lock, and he, he took his time to come out. And I don't know if that was intentional on his part. Maybe he was just kind of soaking in the moment and getting ready for it because I, whatever it was for me, uh, just, you know, a thousand folded for Keontae because um, I, I just imagine this is just something that he'd been, he'd been looking for for a long, long time. If for no other reason than to just check a box and to get some closure and to have this milestone and, you know that I don't think the people in Kansas State had an appreciation for what was going on as much as uh, the little cadre of uh, small cadre of, of people from Florida who were around Keontae so much the last couple years. Um, but to see his parents, his two sisters, his grandmother, uh, they were all there for this, and I had never seen them together in one place before. Uh, they came to Senior Day. I don't think all of them were there for Senior Day last year when they had Keontae walk out and, you know, uh, uh, take the court for that, for that brief uh, kind of fake jump ball or whatever. But uh, I just thought it was fantastic. Uh, obviously the, the, the Florida would have liked to play, play better in that game. Kansas state is having a, an unbelievable season. He's a big part of that. Uh, so uh, there was, that was my first trip to Manhattan, Kansas. I was very impressed with the, it's a very quaint, uh, uh, really kind of kind of cool campus. The weather was beautiful when we were there. So the trip, with the exception of the outcome of the game, turned out was 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 really really good. But the whole Keontae, Keontae had a double double. Uh, he missed a dunk. I think he kind of shrugged that off, which was kind of cool uh, from his standpoint. I'm not sure that it that it could have gone much better. Um, but I would imagine he he'll remember maybe beating Kansas State with a last-second dunk on an alley-oop a lot more than maybe, maybe he'll remember this game. But personally, with his parents and all those people there, um, really, really kind of really, really special day. Um, glad I was there to see it. And I think I speak for some people who were around a lot last year when I say I'm glad it's behind us also. I got to 
witness all this as kind of <clears throat> almost as an outside observer. Yes, I'm a Gator now, but I was not a part of the Keontae Johnson era of Florida Gators basketball, but just different things really stood out to me. Um, one was the most unique handshake line I've ever seen <laughs> post game to where Keontae with his former teammates had not missed a beat with their individualized greetings for each other. And then to see them all take a picture together at the end of the game was was quite inspirational, I think, for all of us that have to remember that um, sports bonds us in a, in a much different way than just what jersey you're wearing. And so to get to see that, but also, as Chris mentioned, you know, whether it be Chris or uh, his former teammates, certainly Duke, Warner, the trainer, there was a sense of relief. There was a, a moment to move past that I think was done in a gracious and graceful way this past Saturday. While most of the, the football activity for Sign Day happens now in December, um, technically, February 1st, is this Wednesday, this is National Signing Day. There aren't a lot of big names left on the board, but Florida has added a little bit. Scott, can you tell us about the, today's additions to the, uh, to the class? Yeah, the only addition really is Caden Jones, the offensive lineman from uh, New Orleans, played a day with Sal High down there. And he fits the mold. We talked about it on this podcast the last week or so. Uh, Billy Napier loves big offensive linemen. This guy checks in whether depends on which side you look at. He's either six seven or six eight, and about three hundred and thirty pounds. So another huge addition to the uh, offensive line. And um, you know this guy played in the Under Armour All American game and uh, announced his uh, commitment uh, on that day back in early January. It's an interesting coincidence that Montreal Johnson last year had Osiris Torrance blocking for him in the Gators run game. The two of them were together at Louisiana Lafayette. Montreal is also a De La Salle crusader. And I'm sure at some point these two young men uh, were involved in the crusader run game in the city of New Orleans. So for back-to-back years, Montreal Johnson will have a crusader with him. Uh, perhaps on the field at the same time at the college level. The more you know, the more you know. Um, Scott, as, as we've noted multiple times, this does not mean by any stretch that the the class is complete or that Florida won't have any more additions before we see them on the field in September. Um, this is just the last window for signing high school athletes. However, more transfer port activity can take place at any time, correct? Yeah, I mean, there could be uh, some more this summer. I mean, their scholarship total is, yeah, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's right near 85, so they don't have many spots left. But uh, there's always potential for uh, attrition uh, through the summer. Uh, so I think that's just the new new world. It's always been somewhat a part of the uh, summer landscape in college football, but never more so than, than the era that we're in now. So, yeah, that could change. But as of right now, you're looking at 31 new players since basically the end of last season, uh, that's uh, what ten transfers, twenty-one signees, so uh, right around there. And you know they had a lot leave, so they had a lot of space, a lot of holes to fill. And it's going to be a totally different Florida team uh, than the one that ran onto the field against uh, Las in the Las Vegas Bowl. Certainly a lot different than the one that will open against Utah this fall than the one that opened last fall against Utah. So. Uh, the transitions in full bloom. Yeah, no question. 
Uh, I want to turn our attention now to a couple of, of comings and goings. One of them that is uh, that is on their way out of uh, of the sport of baseball would be Darren O'Day, a former Gator who had a very long major league career, and one of those guys. I actually had a few uh, a few opportunities to play with the Braves, but. He kind of just heard his name. He was always around. I'm sure he, he made a very nice living and, and has done well for himself. And someone who's been in the league for so long, you might forget that he at one point was a Gator. Yeah, he was a former walk-on at Florida, believe it or not, and uh, worked his way into the major leagues. And he lived in that anonymous uh, role of middle reliever for much of his career. And unless you're, uh, you know, back in the day, maybe some of those guys were known more. But in today's game, you know, so many pitchers come and go during the course of the season that for to establish yourself in that role for 15 seasons, you have to not only have, you know, be a good pitcher, be a good teammate, a guy just, you know, lived a, uh, I think, a good life away from the ballpark. You know, he made a name at Florida here a couple of years ago when he donated a, f- a nice financial gift when they built the new stadium. And there's a bullpen out there named after him. So, uh, he he cares about the program, cares about the Gators, still follows them, comes to a game, uh, you know, when he gets a chance in the spring. So, uh, yeah, 15 years, one thing that kind of surprised me. I mean, that's the longest any former Florida player tied for the longest has ever played in the majors with Mike Stanley and David Ross, a couple of former catchers. And, of course, Ross now manages the Cubs. So, yeah, Darren O'Day, pretty nice career. Where, where does he fit all-time Gators in the major leagues? Is he top five? Well, for longevity and for what he accomplished. I mean, he was never an all-star. And obviously that role, you know, you're a relief pitcher. You're not going to grab the headlines of position players. In the, in the pitching side of it, I would say he's in the top five. I don't know about all-around position players. Brad Wilkerson and Robbie Thompson. And I think Pete Alonzo is going to change all that yeah. by the time he's uh, I think he's going to be safely at number one if he stays healthy. Yeah, no question. Pete Alonso is on that trajectory. Um, speaking of former Gator catchers, you brought up David Ross. Transition here. Uh, Mike Rivera, who is a much more recent Gator than the guys we were just talking about, uh, he is coming back to Gainesville to be part of the coaching staff. Can you talk about Mike Rivera's return and, and what it means to have someone who pretty recently was a, a leader for that program in this new role? Yeah, you know, when they won the College World Series in 2017, I mean, Mike Rivera was you know, that famous image of him catching the last out, running out to the mound. That's the one that ran on the front of, I know, the Omaha newspaper. And the next day, the Gators collected a lot of those and brought home. Uh, but, you know, when you look at Kevin O'Sullivan's tenure, and he's a former catcher, I think Mike Revere is probably one of his all-time favorite players because he's certainly one of the headiest players he's ever coached. They were always on the same page uh, calling a game with the pitching staff. And now Mike's career, you know, in the pros, he played some minor league ball. And I don't think he was ever a top prospect, but he was a solid prospect. But, you know, he tried it for five years, and now it looks like he's going to get into coaching and finish his degree. So I think that's a a nice addition for them. And while we're on baseball news, guys, here, Brad Wilkerson, I mentioned earlier, he joined the Yankees this week as an assistant hitting coach. Oh, wow. He's back in the majors uh, with the Yankees, so. For, uh, it's that time of year when baseball is creeping into the podcast here. By the way, not only is Mike returning to finish his degree, he will be a new father within the next 30 to 60 days, I have learned. And the current players are thrilled to have him, especially that group of catchers right now, 
where they're kind of young in that room. They have obviously the veteran returning as the starter, but they've got young catchers that need to be developed, and they're thrilled to have Mike around them all the time now. And Sean's killing it with the uh, with the factoids today. Jumping in. A little nugget here and there. Bringing in, bringing in fire nuggets here. Moving on to our PAT, which was inspired by a, a video I saw this morning when I woke up of Tom Brady sitting on the beach announcing his retirement, um, determined not to let Adam Schefter scoop him this time around. Uh, took all the drama out of that. I don't really want to talk about Tom Brady so much because we've done that enough. But what I'm, what I'm more interested in is the idea of athletes going out on top. Clearly, well, I guess I shouldn't say clearly, but it did seem that that was Brady's whole idea with continuing when he came back last year was, oh, well, you know, he didn't want to go out the way he did, wanted it to be, you know, riding off in the sunset. Uh, And ultimately that wasn't uh, meant to be. And it went pretty poorly in a lot of ways, but very few athletes are able to do that. So it started make, it made me start thinking about which guys over the years have successfully done it. I don't think the list is very long, but I'm curious which ones stand out the most to you. My initial thought was Stan Musial, who in his last career at bat hit a line drive RBI base hit. It was at home, and it gave him the exact same number of hits at home as he had on the road. No one else has done that in Major League Baseball. But he did not win a championship that year. The Cardinals finished second back when only the division winner went to the postseason. So I thought in the spirit of Adams' uh, lob up for us here to smack out of the park, I turned to two different sports. Three guys came to mind. I hope I don't steal anybody's here. If I'm not mistaken, John Elway won a Super Bowl on his way out to end his career. Correct. And then in basketball, both Tim Duncan and Bill Russell won championships, I I believe, in their final seasons. Duncan's would have been his fifth. I can't remember what number Russell's was. I guess it was his 11th if we're going on number of championships that, that Russell won. Uh, unfortunately, obviously, he passed this past year in 2022. But those were the names that came to mind. I know I'm leaving off a few that my colleagues will pick up for us. So I I will say, Sean, that this is somewhat open to interpretation. I mean, ideally, yeah, you go out winning a championship, but I think you could also view it a little bit differently and someone who maybe, because I I have something that I'm saving. I don't want to, if someone else is going to use it, I don't want to, I don't want to blow it here. But I, I do think it's somewhat open to interpretation of what it means to go out on top. It doesn't mean you're the Super Bowl MVP. But maybe maybe that tips it a little bit as to what I'm thinking about. We'll see. Well, uh, you know, the one that I, I, I remember, and it's only because I was covering hockey at the time, uh, was Ray Bork back in 01. Mm-hmm. That was a big, big story. You know, he played for, I think, 21 seasons with the Bruins. Uh, never won a cup with Colorado, and they win the cup in 01. And, I mean, that was a, that was a moment where – it actually transcended the NHL world. I mean, it was a big sports story. And Bork was one of those guys and one of the good guys, you know, paid his day. And, you know, John Elway came to mind, as Sean mentioned. Uh, Peyton Manning had a very similar yep. end. Uh, didn't have a great Peyton Manning season. He was terrible that year. When you had Von Miller and that defense, uh, and they had a running back who was pretty good, and now his name is slipping me. But – uh you know, he went out with a uh, uh, a championship, and uh, that's one of the recent ones. But, you know, when you pose this question, I'm like, I, had, I did a little research, and one that I kind of forgot about because he played defense, but, man, not only was it a perfect ending, but, dude, this guy has, I think, become a lot more famous after that. Michael Strahan, you know, he never won a Super Bowl 
and he wins it in the last year. Oh, yeah, they beat Tom Brady and the undefeated uh, Patriots. And then, of course, he retires, and now we know him. My kids probably never know he plays football, but they always ask me, who's that guy with the gap tooth? <laughs> I see him here. I see him there. And so, you know, he, he's he's done pretty well for himself post-football, guys. Have I ever told you guys my stray hand story on here? I've not at No? Okay, a quick stray hand story. So um, back in the day when I was out at a fight with my dad who worked for HBO, so it was in boxing, uh, Michael Strahan was at one of the, the parties out there and I was excited. And I was probably like, I don't know, like 15 or 16. And, uh, and I went up to him and asked for a picture. I said, hey, can I get a quick picture? I'm like, it's Michael Strahan. It's, you know, it's the nicest man in America. Uh, and then my dad was fumbling with the camera because at the time you started to use cameras instead of phones. And then Strahan kind of looked at me and said, I thought you said this was going to be quick. I was like, oh, man, I don't even want a picture with you anymore. So, yeah, so this is a reminder. This is why you should be nice to everybody all the time, because all it takes is one bad moment. And now for the rest of my life, I have a bad impression of Michael Strahan because he wasn't nice to me when I was a teenager. So do you think maybe it's maybe not a coincidence? Are you suggesting that Strahan has been nice to everybody else throughout history except for me? (laughs) I'm just, you know, just throwing out. (laughs) Um. Rocky Marciano went 49 and 0 and died in a plane crash. Okay, I would say he went out on top. It didn't. Maybe that wasn't his intent. Uh, Sandy Koufax, I think, won like 27 games, had a 1.75 ERA and 300 strikeouts, and he retired. I guess he had arm issues at the time. Jim Brown is one that just jumps out. Now these are all before like I was a passionate sports fan. And but Jim Brown had 1,500 yards in a 14 game season, walked away to be a movie star. Um, obviously in, in our time, it's been more along the lines of Elway, of course, he didn't just win a Super Bowl. He went two in a row mm-hmm. and retired. Um, and I just remember that Super Bowl. That's, that was, that, I think that was the year before or two years before I started covering the NFL where you knew he was finished because he ran around the, the stadium and just jumped into the stands and you, it, it, everyone just knew, you know, that was, you know, he, he was going out about as on, on, on top as you could. Um, and I think that was around the same time Barry Sanders retired. And where would the rushing records have been if Barry Sanders had stayed in the league? I just know that I remember John Lynch would always talk about how thankful he was that Barry Sanders left because in every highlight film you ever see Barry Sanders, John, John Lynch looks bad. And not <laughs> a lot of people make John Lynch look bad. Um, I mean – seriously one maybe maybe the greatest running back of all time if he had decided to play um you know probably you know three or four more years if he wanted to uh you know being stuck in 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 purgatory with the lions you know maybe maybe caused him to do that but i also i'll remember and this had a lot of play Derek jeter's end of his career yeah it was just a single but wasn't it a walk-off single to win a game in his final game um uh and, and yeah, that was, it was it was the one it was at Yankee Stadium because then his final game was in Boston. I think his last uh, at bat okay. was like an infield single. It was a swinging bunt infield single, but his last mm-hmm. Yankee Stadium at bat, I believe you're right, was a walk-off hit. Mm-hmm. Well, the one my dad always talked about, and he was a manager of my team I watched growing up. Ted Williams had a home run in his last at bat. Did he of really his, of his career? Yeah. Huh. And still refused to tip his cap. <laughs> which makes him a horseman Scott <laughs> yes he's a true horseman <laughs> but uh, uh, probably still the, you know people I don't know what people talk he's the greatest hitter of all time I think I think the numbers probably suggest that 
But uh, I think he was 41 when he retired, and Lord only knows um, uh, the numbers he would have put up had he not spent, I believe, five seasons in his dead prime in World War II and then again in Korea. So um, I just probably overstayed my uh, welcome on this particular subject. Um, but those are those are ones that come to my mind. Okay, here's mine. No one said it. I know it was in a, a losing campaign and a terrible season, but how about at 37, Kobe's final game scores 60 points and basically like can't miss the entire night? It's a great one. Yeah, Why not? Individual Very went out. Good. The team did not go out on top, but I just remember watching that. And it's it's the most insignificant game I can remember watching. It was a terrible game. It meant nothing except for Kobe. And he just he just went off. It was wild. Well, I mean, that, that night it meant everything. Right. That so, is true. Uh, that was the biggest story in sports that night. And that's a, that's a fantastic one. I'm surprised that we didn't remember that one. Good call. I thought you were going to say you're surprised that I came up with it. You you, you took a no. you took a different no. approach. So I, I appreciate the uh, the way that you slanted that there. Um, I'm sure that our listeners have their own as well. Uh, but for now, the roundtable is closed. Thank you to all three of you, and we look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks, Adam. The transfer portal has led to the rapid breakdown and reconstruction of rosters throughout college athletics. But it's most drastically felt in the sports with the smallest rosters. This is why, despite being less than a year removed from his departure, only a few of the current Gators actually played with Keontae Johnson. But stepping back to see the big picture, his story impacted everyone in the game of basketball, including Will Richard. The sophomore transfer from Belmont just arrived this season, and when we spoke to him in the aftermath of the Kansas State game, we began by asking about the emotional toll the trip to Manhattan took on the Gators. I mean, I know it's um, really big for the guys to be able to go back and um and play against them. I mean, they've been together with them for a long time. So for me, um, I don't have the same like interaction with them that they did, um, of course. But I mean, it was really special to see him back on the court after all that happened and stuff. So I'm just proud to see him doing what he's what he's doing right now. Yeah, so afterwards, uh, Colin said he posted something on Twitter. Basically, it was like a picture of them hugging and said, you know, some things are bigger than basketball. When you go through something like this, where you have a story like that. What 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 does that do to sort of reset you and remind you of uh, you know of priorities about kind of like where basketball fits into the bigger picture? Yeah, I mean for me it just shows me um how um, blessed I am to play this game. I mean uh, it could it can end just like that. So um just seeing him being able to come back on the court it, it definitely puts things in perspective and just shows me that I need to appreciate every time I get to step on the court. Um, I right, I want to let's rewind all the way back to the beginning for you now. Um, can you tell us about? your family, where you grew up, and kind of the, the very early years as we progressed through your journey? Uh, family, um, real close. We've got a mom, dad, uh, older sister, older brother. Um, we grew up, like, I grew up in a few different places. So I started off in, I was born in Washington, uh, Pasco, Washington. Um, moved to South Carolina. That's where the majority of my family's from. Then we moved to um, Ottawa, Tennessee. It's probably like 30 minutes from Chattanooga. And then I moved to Atlanta, Fairburn. So I'll say um, Fairburn is probably the place that I feel like raised me to raised me the most because I, that's where I really grew up at. But I've been been a couple of different places. So you you kind of started north and just kept going further south, right? <laughs> yep, that's true. Yep. You're, you're gonna end up in the Keys, I guess, is where this is headed. <laughs> yep. Um, so where did where did basketball come into play for you? At what point did you start playing, and when did it become a, a big part of your life? Um, I've been playing basketball since I can. Remember, it's been really early. Um, 
I think I saw it around like when I was three, like actually trying to play for real. But uh, yeah, it's been it's been a part of my life for a really long time, probably since I was born. Was it something your parents introduced you to early on? Like, why was it so quickly a big part of your life? It was something that just came naturally. I mean, um, we would always watch sports a lot of my family. So I guess just watching around them. Uh, my brother, he played. Uh, my dad, he played in high school, but he played football at Clemson. So hmm. we're just always watching sports. I guess basketball is a sport that really, really grew on me. Older brother or younger brother? Older brother. How much did what he was doing influence you, as uh, especially early on as you grew up? I mean, it definitely influenced me. Um, just seeing him meet over out there and playing games and him having fun, making shots. Um, and then we play one on one in the backyard, and he'd be dunking on me and stuff. It definitely gave me a competitive edge, and I just wanted to get better just so I could beat him. Yeah. Does uh, did he end up playing at college in college as well? No, he didn't. He um he stopped after high school. Okay, so that tells me at some point you probably became a little better than him. <laughs> Do you remember when the point was you're like, oh, wow, I'm actually beating him and I'm, I'm not I'm not looking back? Um, For me, I probably think it was around eighth grade. That's when I started beating him. So then, yeah, after I, after I started beating him, I was like, okay, yeah, it's, it's time for me to take this next step. <laughs> yeah. And after you started beating him, was that when he was like, I'm out? <laughs> oh, yeah, after I beat him, he was like, yeah, I don't need to play you no more. So that was it. <laughs> Um, you know, a lot of guys that uh, that make it to this level are pretty versatile athletes as well. So what other mm-hmm. sports did you compete in? Uh, I played football, so I was probably like in seventh grade, but that's that's really it. So okay, so it's all yes, yeah, so it's all basketball. What was yeah. it about the game that, that you really latched on to? Because you know, a lot of guys that's okay, I played yeah, baseball, I played football, mm-hmm. did all these other things, and then I settled on this, but it sounds like You've always been really focused on basketball. So what what about it do you think made you so focused on it? Um, I'll probably just say like just the way it's played, fast paced, um, a few like highlight plays in a game and stuff like that, learning different plays and stuff like that. All that really drew my attention growing up. When did you become a shooter? I mean, at what point did you identify that was a, a big part of your game? I've probably been shooting probably since like elementary school, but really like in my like middle school years, that's when I was starting to really become a really good shooter. So I'll say middle school is when it really happened for me. Did you have routines that got you into it? Like, was it one of those things when you go outside and say, okay, I'm not leaving until I make a hundred shots. So I got to hit, you know, 10 straight threes from this spot before I wrap it up. Like, how did you really refine those skills as a shooter? Yeah, it was definitely on things like that. Like trying to make certain shots in a row. I mean, uh, my brother and dad, it would be out there rebounding for me. We'd just shoot like until it was dark outside. So just just getting as many shots up as possible um, before before I went back in the house. Do you have any type of drill you do where it's something like, okay, I'm going to make 10 shots from here, 10 shots here. What do you like? What tells you that you've uh, you've had a good day when you're practicing? Um, I'm usually just trying to shoot above like 75 percent uh, for wide open, wide open threes that I shoot during my workout. So. Uh, just trying not to miss miss a lot of shots. So that's really it. So when you started getting recruited, what do you remember about that process? Uh, out of high school, um, it was really just like mid majors. Uh, a lot of mid majors calling. Um, that was around the time that COVID was about to start. So mm-hmm. I only got to take like one official visit, and that was to like North Alabama. That was my first offer. So uh, recruiting it wasn't as like fast and like compact that I wanted. Like I didn't get a lot of schools that I thought I should be getting. But I mean, I got some really good, really good mid-major options and I chose the one that I thought was best for me, which was Belmont. Yeah. How challenging was it going through recruiting during COVID? Because such a big part of that process is 
you go to campus, you're, you know, you're hosted by one of the guys, you get to know what the team is like. I mean, how difficult was it to make a decision that's this important when you weren't able to have that full experience? I mean, it was, it was really difficult. Um, to be honest, there was a lot of praying done by me and my family to try to make the best decision for us. So, I mean, like when I visited Belmont, like I was, it was just me and my parents walking on our own, like no players, Mm -hmm. no coaches, like, it was nobody in there guiding us around campus. We're just we're just going up there on our own. So it was it was there. It was really hard for us. Mm. So what ultimately led you to Belmont? Why was that the the right move for you at the time? Uh, I was just say the culture, um, winning culture. They're known to um, uh, win a lot of games. Uh, they produce really good shooters. Uh, they have good academics down there. Good family environment. So those that's what really drew me to Belmont. So after your freshman year, you had a successful freshman year there. What was it that told you, I need I need a change, I need something different? Why was that important to you? Uh, me and my family, we just thought it would be best for me to get a new new scenery, new um, new people involved with um, my coaches, uh, teammates, stuff like that. We just we needed something different, and I just wanted to um, go somewhere where I was going to be fully developed to get where I wanted to be, and just just stuff like that. How did Florida come into the picture for your your second choice here? As you decided to move on, what schools were you looking at? What was going to be most important to you in picking a new school? Uh, what I was really looking for was um really a really good relationship with the coaches. Um, I just needed to have like coaches that I could trust. Um, that trusted me. I could talk to them about anything. Um, I knew looking for family feel, a uh, good playing style, uh, good academics, of course, and just somewhere that wasn't too far away from home. So transferring over when there's also a coaching change happening, mm-hmm. uh, what, what what about Coach Golden and his plan really spoke to you? I'll just say, like, Coach Golden, he reached out to me to probably the first day I hit the portal. And we talked every day and since I committed. So just him and how um, how much he was in contact with me showed how much he wanted me. Um, I would say he called me. It wasn't even, like, our conversation was that it wasn't that he was, like, a, my coach. We were talking, I was like, He's like a mentor to me. So just seeing the way he talked to me and like how he um interacted, that was really huge for me. And I knew that he um had the best interest for me. From an outsider perspective, we've heard a lot about analytics and, and the role that that plays for this coaching staff for yeah. the program. How has that been translated to the players? Like in what way are they using the data they're collecting to yeah. you know, to make meaningful recommendations to you or to help mold what you're doing on the court? How is that factored in at this point? I mean, it's been really good for us. I mean, just seeing um what shots we're getting that are being that have been good shots for us. I mean, stuff that we're doing on defense that has been helping us to win games and stuff like that. Like certain keys and percentages that help us win games, just like turning the ball over less than fifteen percent, being eight plus on the rebounds and stuff like that. This is um little things like that. And what I like about the analytics, like we would think that it's like going to make us select certain shots and like not be able to play free, but they've done a great job of. Let us play free within the analytics. So it's been it's been good for us. That's interesting. What's the most surprising thing you've learned about even your game or maybe the team overall from mm-hmm. those analytics? Like in, in what ways did they show you data that you're like, wow, I wouldn't have like I wouldn't have thought that? For me, it's like we have like three different keys, like what I was talking about with the turnovers, rebounding, and then like I think I forgot what the other one is, but like if you get those three games, like you're almost like certain to win the game. So it's crazy that the games that we've gotten all three, like we won the game by a good amount. So just seeing how those three keys actually mean so much to winning games. Mm. 
you mentioned a little while ago, most of your time spent growing up was around Atlanta. I'm curious, mm-hmm. as someone also from Atlanta who went to Florida, uh, what was the uh, what was the reaction of friends and family when you said you were going to be a Gator? Because I'm I bet there was enough a good number of bulldogs in in your orbit oh, yeah. there. Yeah, I mean, for my immediate family, they were they were happy. Um, but there was definitely some people around us that were a little questionable about <laughs> George is like an hour away from my house, so. Uh, there, there's definitely a few, a few little comments, but you know, everybody else loved it. Yeah. Um, you know, Belmont is a, a pretty, for those who don't know, it's, it's a pretty small school, obviously going from that type of school to Florida is a, it's like night and day in terms of the difference. Mm-hmm. What, what, what were the biggest adjustments you had to make from a, even not even talking basketball, just from a, you know, life from a school standpoint, what was mm-hmm. that change like going from a Belmont to Florida? For me, I mean, it wasn't uh, that much harder. I'll probably say the biggest thing for me is like the distance I had to walk to class. Like I've never <laughs> had to walk 25, 30 minutes just to get to one class. So at Belmont, it was probably like a five-minute walk. So I'll just say like difference. I mean, it's a lot more people and stuff like that. So just like class size and stuff like that, that's the biggest – that's been the biggest thing for me. What are your What are your favorite spots on campus outside of the complex where you spend a lot of your time mm-hmm. – uh, what, you know, when, when you're hanging out and you have a chance to just relax, like what are, what are the spots on campus you most like to go to? Um, I usually walk around like rights, uh, rights union. I go to Turlington. That's, that's the majority of it. I really just walk around those places. I like to go to Starbucks and Wright. So that's, that's usually my spot. I'm sure there's a few other people that have that same idea, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> is there, have you established any athlete preference? Like, Hey guys, I'm a basketball player. I need like, I, I can't wait 20 minutes for a, for a coffee right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I, I don't use that one. I usually just wait. For the back of my, I have no problem with it. Now you're like, yeah, it's actually not terrible. It, it, yep. it, you might use it now. You might use it now. Yep. <laughs> um, so, okay, on on the basketball side, what have been the biggest adjustments playing at this level compared mm-hmm. to playing at, at a mid major? Um, I would definitely say um the speed of the game is a lot lot quicker than what I was uh, experiencing at the mid major level. Um, obviously, guys are a lot more athletic. Um. A lot faster, quicker, and jump higher. So I just say speed of the game and athleticism those are two big differences that I had to get adjusted to and just learn that like I'm not gonna be the most athletic guy. So I gotta be smarter than them, like watch more film and stuff like that to make sure that I can make up for that. What athletes do you look up to the most? There's certain players that you've sort of modeled your game after, like I want a piece of this guy, I want to do a little bit of this. What what mm-hmm. is your uh, what, what's your composition in terms of athletes you look up to? Um, I really like watching like um Clay Thompson and Michael Bridges. I just like um their long wings that play defense. They can shoot the ball, sport, and and do all of that. So I really like watching those two guys. Those are probably the main two. Who is your favorite athlete of all time? Who's a guy? It could be any sport. Someone you've always mm-hmm. looked up to and and sort of sets the the tone for what you want to be if you can. Uh, probably LeBron. LeBron's definitely my favorite. I feel like everybody says LeBron when I ask them that question. I mean, besides being yeah. besides being LeBron, mm-hmm. what is it about LeBron that that you like so much? What what speaks to you? I mean, I just like how he uses his platform. I mean, of course, he's like already one of the greatest basketball players, but I mean, he gives he gives back to the community and stuff like that. He does certain things that um, a lot of a lot of athletes aren't doing. So just seeing how he uses his platform to give back that's that's huge for me. So he's about to become the NBA's all time leading scorer. And you're, you know, you're a new school guy, so I, I could probably guess your answer. But do mm. you think, is LeBron the GOAT? Is it once he passes Kareem, is that the last little thing he needs to claim GOAT status? Or 
Is he still maybe taking a backseat to MJ, to Kobe, to one of those guys? For me, I think yes. But, I mean, I didn't grow up watching MJ and stuff. Right. I grew up watching right. LeBron. So, of course, that's going to be my answer. So, <laughs> yeah, I think I think LeBron is for sure. Do you think your teammates would all agree with that? Is that like a, is that a consensus, do you think, uh, for, for LeBron? Yeah, I think it is, for sure. So, okay, when you're not on the court, when you're not practicing, when you're not in school, what are some things you like doing when you have a chance to step away from uh, all of those commitments that you do have? So I'm I'm real laid back. Um, I sleep a lot of my free time, watch Netflix, play video games, hang with my friends. Um, I'm definitely trying to get it more into golf because I heard that's kind of relaxing. So I'm going to try to get more into that after the season. But those are probably the main things. It's only relaxing if you're good at it, I've found. Otherwise, yeah. it's very <laughs> – otherwise, it just makes you really, really angry. Yeah. Um, who told you that golf is a good thing to help you relax? My dad. I'm My, my dad, he plays, so okay. he's saying it's a good thing that helps him get his mind off work and all that. So <laughs> I told him I, I start, definitely start trying it with him. How far How far have you gotten – have you done anything yet or are you still, like, just thinking about starting? I'm still just thinking about starting. I mean, I okay. go, like – Put putting to put Shaq in Atlanta every time I'm back home. Yeah. So that's that's about it. Okay, so we haven't. So have you have you done anything but putting at this point? Oh, uh, I've been to the driving range a couple of times. Okay, that's, that's about it. I had that. Go, did you have? Was your dad coaching you up? Like, do you have any lessons yet? Or are you just sort of like just literally getting started? Like, do do we know how? Do we have a grip? Do we have a swing? Like, how far along are we here? Yeah, we have a grip and a swing. Um, okay. The main thing for me is just not trying to hit the ball as hard as possible. That's that's the main thing I'm learning right now. When you went to the driving range, mm-hmm. did you at least once attempt a happy Gilmore swing? Mm-mm. No, you didn't. You yeah, didn't I'm try scared. The- <laughs> scared my shoulder's gonna come out of place. Yeah, and try that one. Um, final thing for you, as we talk here today, you guys are you know in the midst of a, a really difficult stretch, trying to push to get into the tournament. What mm-hmm. do you feel like right now are the keys to getting there? Like, what what are you seeing in terms of what you guys need to improve the most to continue playing on through March, where you want to be? I feel like uh, the big keys for us is just staying together. I mean, everyone knows it's going to be a tough stretch. So just staying together, um, going out and playing our game, being aggressive, um, taking the shots we know are good for the team, uh, just just doing doing what we know we can do and what we're capable of and just, just sticking together and knowing that it's going to get tough. But that's when we got to come even closer to come out and pull off some of these games. Well, well, we really appreciate your time today. Uh, good luck getting into golf. It's not something. It's not <laughs> something I would recommend for your sanity, but your dad probably knows better than me. Um, but yeah, thank you again, and, and good luck the rest of the way. Yeah, I appreciate you. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting FloridaGators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales. Gator Tales.